one of the things for uh, <coughs> for me, for Gail and me, being in uh, here in Dharamsala, is seeing just how much it's grown over the time we've been here. And of course, anywhere changes over 20-something <coughs> years. But the amount of construction here has been really, really extraordinary. And I think, like I said once, one of the first times coming up here after seeing so much was a little bit, like, <coughs> painful, actually. And yet, partly, like, that's what happens. And partly what impresses me is that even though there's so much construction, and that so much of the construction is in, is in places where one could never imagine it would be even possible to build something, you know, hillsides like this, and then like a six-story huge place. And despite that, what's impressive is that the feel of the place hasn't changed that much, actually. And so being up and we went to see where Narayan was staying today in Dharamkot, and Dharamkot was literally one chai shop and four or five earth houses in the time we were there. And then when we asked where he was staying, he said, oh, on the main street of Dharamkot. <laughs> there wasn't any street, let alone a main street. And yet still looking out over the hillsides and just the, the similar kind of feeling, mountainous, spacious, clean air, inspiring, at least to me, I love mountains. And also just reflecting on the fact that, you know, a lot of the building here is it reflects the growing interest in Buddhism. You know, the, like I said, when we were here, Dalai Lama was, uh, you know, he just received the Nobel Peace Prize a couple of years previously. So he was well enough known for that, but still he was kind of very accessible and there was, there was few people here, etc. And now there's there's a lot of people that stay here long term. A lot of people, you know, really committed, studying Tibetan language, translating texts, um, supporting Tibetan teachings in different ways, etc. And it's just one of the expressions among the different ones that we've seen of the kind of the, well, the f in some ways the flourishing of Buddhism. Someone sometimes some expressions one wonders if it's the Bud that's flourishing or whether it's just the ism that's flourishing. But uh, there we go, that will always be the case. And so th that's what's happening here. And then in the different places that we've been to, you know, we've been, uh, um, we've met with just these different expressions of or the, the culture and the practices and the teachings and the people and the lifestyles and the intentions and the heart movements that are all about this Buddhism, in other words, this awakeism, this uh, longing to awake, this uh, wish to awake, this sense of capacity to awake, this recognition of the possibility of awakening, and then this kind of um, uh, marshalling the resources to engage in practices of awakening. So I was just reflecting a little on the, you know, what are the, what are the real shifts that, um, that draw one's life, that awaken one's life. What are the real shifts in, uh, in view, <coughs> in intention? in energy, in lifestyle, in, um, in confidence, that really um, potentize the awakening journey, we might say. 
because everybody's awakening. I mean, it's not awakening isn't the private property of Buddhism. Everybody's awakening. It's just that we're all awakening pretty much excruciatingly slowly. So one can see that over kind of the cosmology of many, many lifetimes of excruciatingly slow awakening, and sometimes it's a few steps forward and then oh, many steps backwards, etc. And yet, you know, the, 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 there's a process of evolution. Everything's evolving. And evolving doesn't mean, um, we tend to think evolving just means sort of something getting better. But actually evolving means changing and developing. And some things may change uh, in, 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 and be more enhanced, and some things change and drop away. It's part of the process of it. It's interesting how we often kind of lament the change. We see what's gotten lost often, or some of us see more what's gotten lost, some of us see more what's gotten developed. And so we kind of look at, uh, if, you, if you have a tendency to look at what's lost, we might look at children, for example, and say, well, no one can do, the children can't do maths anymore because they've all got calculators so or, or on their phones, so they don't know how to add up on paper anymore. Like, as if that's some kind of tragedy as if it represents the rotting of the brains of the youth and the end of civilization but you know there was a time at which you know one generation would have said those kids they, they don't know how to rub two sticks together and make fire anymore you know because they've got matches or, or whatever it might be so right, in the process of evolution we acquire some skills and we lose some skills of course we do we've all lost I mean over a few generations we've lost tons and tons of skills that our ancestors had and we've gained skills. And it's the same, actually, with heart capacity, mind capacity, physical capacity, spiritual capacity. I'm often very struck when I'm here in India, and my assumption, I don't know if this is true, but my assumption is that it'll change now very fast over the next generation or two, because of technology, mostly. But I've always been struck here how people's memories are incredibly... Uh, uh, how people have incredibly good memories partly because uh, of it seems to me because of uh, not so much exposure to a kind of diversified attention and technology so you know I know people who you know many times people will remember us so we come after years and years and there are places where they see endless, you know, foreigners passing through and they'll remember us and they'll remember our names and they'll ask after our children or, uh, or people will in a shop will remember what I bought the last time I was in that shop and how much they, what price they told me for it, even though they're telling different prices to different people all day long, right? Extraordinary kind of, that's a, and that's a particular mental capacity. And, you know, it's like the oral tradition, the way Buddha's teachings were preserved through an oral tradition for two or three hundred years. And that's the same in all uh, pre-modern cultures. Like people had a really great capacity for that kind of remembering oral tradition, because the mind capacity wasn't being taken up by remembering pop songs and uh, bits of movies and uh, you know Facebook posts. So it's not. I'm not trying to idealize the past in any way. Far from it. I've got no investment in in that. I don't think things are getting better, and I don't think things are getting worse. And I don't think things are getting both better and worse, and I don't think things are getting neither better nor worse. <laughs> things are like this. 
but it seems to me on uh, a transformative uh, path of practice that there are there are well many I could point to but I thought I'd just point to three kind of shifts and the first one really is that shift where one bec it needs to be or naturally maybe recognize that one is more interested in being awake than one is in um, being comfortably numb. And most people are more, are much more interested in being, you know, that phrase from the Pink Floyd song, comfortably numb. It's the, it's a very good phrase to, uh, to, um, yeah, look at just human nature, what we easily seek. I want to be comfortable, and. Uh, and sometimes we can actually be engaging with meditation practice as an attempt to go comfortably numb. Sometimes we start off a retreat, like I'm coming for awakening, but by day three, actually, I'd be, I really would settle for comfortably numb. <laughs> I'd really settle for being able to get through this sitting with not too much mental agitation and not too much emotional drama and not too much physical discomfort, etc. And... You know, one can engage in these kind of practices and get various benefits, um, even while being, you know, attached, quite strongly attached to our sense of self and our sense of uh, world and our sense of reality, our sense of time and space, etc. But that shift where one's uh, more interested in seeing and knowing. Uh, the truth of how things are and why one's willing to do whatever it takes for that. Maybe not in all moments, of course, but there, there, where there's a, a certain kind of shift of critical mass. And we may strive for that, some of us. And for others of us, it's just, it's just the, the, the pain of not doing that becomes too apparent to us, or the dissatisfaction of not doing that just becomes too apparent to us. <coughs> I, just can't, I just can't go along in the old way anymore. It's, you know, some inspiring examples of that. Ajahn Buddha Dasa in the leaving the monastery because he and leaving the comfort of the monastery and just taking the Majjhima Nikaya and going to the jungle to sit with the tigers because the, the, he's just more interested in awakening than in being comfortable. Shivna Giri, the Kashi Naresh guy, leaving home at nine years old because his mother couldn't answer the question, what is Shiva? And he had to know. And certainly the kind of compel compulsion I felt in my own small way. You know, they, the story I told you was it just yesterday of going up to the cave. I didn't want to go to the cave. I didn't want to go to the... I was, all I was sure about was I was going to be hungry and cold, and, but that's what yogis did. But somehow the, the, there was a certain foolish compulsiveness to that as well. But uh, somehow the, the, kind of the, the need to, to do whatever it takes to support this knowing that there's a possibility to be to really radically transform 
one's life, one's understanding, one's being in the world. And we, like we said last night during the teachings, how easily we can compare ourselves to some inspiring being and feel lacking in some way, and how easy it might be listening to that to feel, oh, well, you know, I'm attached to my comfort in this or that way, this or that way. But, you know, why did you come on this trip? You could have done something much more comfortable than this. Right? You could have gone for a beach holiday. You didn't have to put yourself through... Uh, um, whatever we had to put ourselves through. It's pretty quite comfortable, <laughs> yeah. actually. <laughs> but, but, you know, but the wait for the train. Or the, uh, you know, the being coerced into sitting still at various random times of the day and evening, often in quite unsuitable situations and with lack of proper equipment for sitting, etc., etc. And yet there's a, there's a willingness, right, to, to, to um, yeah, a willingness to engage awakening. So on the one hand, it's an invitation just to, to recognize the way in which that is alive in your own life. And also, of course, it's an invitation to be interested in, to look at the, pl- the moments and the places where there is, that isn't alive. And like I say, it's not like it's there all the time. I don't, th- I don't know if it could be there all the time. The teacher I respect more than any other living teacher in the world, who I consider to be really the most liberated person I know in the, uh, the world, watches a lot of TV and will and says specifically, well, TVs are really good, because the, the experience is one of processing insights pretty much constantly. So, says, oh, watching TV, just it's a really great way to get some space from the intensity of um, liberating insight. Interesting. I'm, I'm, that's a big thing I'm offering you, telling you that. It's okay. To, it's okay. Right. Yeah, of course. Right. If you try to demand of yourself every moment that I've got to be more awake, more interested in being awake than I am in being comfortable, oh my God, you just wear yourself out and be exhausted. And it's an interesting. If but if you get so interested in being comfortable that the interested in awake is just this theoretic theory. I'm theoretically interested in Buddhism. There's lots of people who, you know, talk a good talk about spiritual stuff. So it doesn't have to be all the time. It can't be all the time. But it has to be enough that that basically the 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 stream of one's life start is it starts to get pulled in that direction. And that one starts to feel the unstoppability of freedom the inevitability of awakening, the naturalness of the process. Christopher said to me once, teachings and practice, practice and teachings, liberation is unstoppable. And it really was a very was powerful in that moment to have the, my experience of that mirrored by him saying it. And the way the Buddha talked about what, what's called... Um, Sotapanna, stream entry in the tradition. And there's a certain amount of momentum and a certain degree of understanding that one's 
enters the stream of the Dharma. And one senses it's called, it's called bound for liberation. And the sense of knowing that one's life is aligned with the fundamental truths of how consciousness is, how experience is, and the the fact that one's able to to meet and explore and and feel into and find out about experience as it arises in that stream. One knows it's not a question of choosing to walk a path or not walk a path. It's not even, uh, after a certain point, a question of cultivating the path. It's just, just, it's just a question of knowing the way in which one's being carried along infinitely towards deepening, opening, revealing, um, and carried along, carry, being carried along towards a the dissolving and exploding and uh, humiliating of one's <laughs> uh, oneself, really. That might not sound like a very glamorous image, but we need to be humiliated. Not by others, but we need to be humiliated inwardly. We need to have our own arrogance and pompousness exploded quite regularly. We need to have the way in which we take ourselves so seriously. We need to have that, have a raspberry blown at it as often as possible. So that first shift is that shift of um, the willingness to awaken and the willingness to do what it takes to awaken. The second shift I was thinking about is to do with knowing. The willingness to... um, (coughs) Well, the willingness to know, actually often, it's more often begins as actually the willingness to not know. The willingness to let go of what we think we know about self and about others and about world and about life. The willingness to put down... Our, um, our assumptions and narratives and views. You know that story of the person that visits, that visits the Zen teacher and the, the Zen teacher pours the tea and it keeps on overflowing and the student says, you know, why are you still pouring the cups full? And the teacher says, just like your mind, it's so full that uh, anything I pour in it just it can't go in, just overflows. So the, the, the willingness to kind of to empty out one's knowing, to relinquish one's knowing, to put aside, and that's, you know, it's a practice to put aside again and again what one thinks one knows. Again, one can get a lot of practice, in it, uh, a lot of benefits in engaging in these practices in a conventional way. And yet it can really only go so far if one's trying to squeeze uh, one, uh, one's practice and one's understanding and one's life and one's insights and one's transformation into a conventional sense of what self is and what world is. And, you know, we, 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 we're attached to that. We, uh, we're, we've invested a lot of energy in being this one. So even though we hear something inspiring about 
not-self and the expansiveness or transparency or emptiness, etc. Okay. But I don't mind being transparent and empty as long as I can stay in control of it in some way. Right? But you know, that's not what emptiness asks of us. It asks of us to dare to let go of our control, to let go of thinking we know, to let go of understanding, to let go of um, who we think we are. And fortunately, pretty soon, we're in, in, into, pretty early on into engaging sincerely in a practice like this. We're confronted by ways in which our experience refuses <coughs> to correspond to our small view. We're confronted by the mysteriousness. And we spoke a couple of nights ago, with, you know, we referred back to some of the examples over the trip. The Hillary Clinton prophecy, or the you know various other things that we've been confronted by, sometimes shocked by Indranag Baba's nine-day burials. Um, so the the kind of grandiose miraculous, as well as the everyday miraculous. Always we start to see that ordinary mind is much too small a box to contain. <coughs> The vastness, the mysteriousness, the imminence, the ungraspability, the unknowability of life. So that's a big ask. And yet, again, to recognize the ways in which, in your own life, the aliveness of that, the willingness to embrace the mysterious is there. You probably couldn't have got through to this point on this trip without some willingness to embrace the mysterious. And it similarly serves as an invitation to see where I get stuck in, try, in, in trying to reduce things to the familiar. Or where I get stuck in a narrative about what's happening that is so familiar that it prevents me from actually seeing feeling, knowing, recognizing, allowing what this is. Because what this is, this moment, this being here, this having a human consciousness, what this is, is profoundly mysterious. Vast. Limitlessly dimensional. Does that sound, sound like a clumsy word? If I say it, limitlessly. There's limitless dimensions to what it is to be here. It's kind of rather petty and tragic that we reduce it all to me and you and uh, the Grace Hotel at Dharamsala. That's what's happening. I'm waiting for dinner. <laughs> yes, that's all true. And what a shame if that's all we have access to. So the willingness to come underneath, we might say, to come underneath our familiar knowing. And to listen to what other capacities we might have, to what other dimensions of knowing might become available to us. Somebody asked, there's this moving passage where somebody asks the Buddha about his understanding and his knowing. And he picks up a 
handful of leaves. And you know that story? He says, which is greater, the leaves in the forest or the leaves in my hand? And of course, everyone says, well, the leaves in the forest. He says, just so. He says, my, the, my experience is like the leaves in the forest. What I'm trying to teach you is like the leaves in my hand. He said, but I'm just I'm trying to teach you what's helpful, what's useful to, you know, to do your own work, to open up your own perception. So we work with the leaves in our hand called practices and mindfulness and uh, etc. But don't be fooled by that practicing mindfulness of breath is about just becoming more mindful and getting to know your breath better. It's about the radical transformation of how we can understand and participate in the cosmic amazement that, of the fact that there is anything at all that's manifest. <laughs> But for simplicity's sake, we call that mindfulness of breathing. <laughs> so we use the leaves in the hand, the skillful means, but we you know, increasingly open up to the, the infinite forest of life. And then the third shift I was thinking about is really the shift of the way we live, <coughs> the being willing to live, so being willing to <coughs> do what it takes to be awake, being willing to do what it takes to know, and then being willing to do what it takes to live in accordance with our deepest wishes, <coughs> to live in accordance with our insights to live in accordance with uh, our dharma, with our deepest knowing. Insight brings a certain responsibility. We'd like to have, oh, you have some insight, and then we tell each other, I had this great insight, and we come and see the teacher, I had this great insight. And then we sort of hope that the insight will somehow do something magical to free up our lives. And some insights are powerful enough that just the insight itself burns something away in us, burns away some habit energy, burns away some narrow view, and, and, and it's transformative by itself. But actually very often what insight does is it shows us how to live in the light of that understanding. And then we, if we want that to really bear fruit, we have to do what it takes to live in the light of that understanding. If we've seen something about the non-separateness of this consciousness from all other consciousnesses, then we're invited to live in the light of that truth, to start to treat others in a way that uh, honours that truth. Often it's a common question that people might say, you know, at the end of a retreat, how do I bring the Dharma more into my life? It really depends what you want. If you want to carry on in the conventional way, well, you can bring the Dharma into your life in a conventional <coughs> way. You can sit a bit in the mornings and you can um, you know, be mindful. You can make a shrine, get a mala. <laughs> you know. But really, if you want to radically transform life, the question is more the other way around. How do I, not how do I bring the Dharma into my life? How do I bring my life into the Dharma.
you know, that's a big ask, right? To look at how we, you know, what the the areas and the activities and the relationships that we actually invest energy into. It doesn't matter what we theoretically uh, invested in. Where do you actually, you know, give the precious resources of your time and your care and your attention and your listening and your money? Because whatever you support, that's what grows. So again, the, the, the wish to be comfortable can trump that sometimes. And there's many ways, like Rumi says, there's a thousand ways to kiss the earth. There's many ways to bring our life into the Dharma. It's not that that should look a certain way. If I thought that should look a certain way, I'd try to look that way. Right. It's not about necessarily becoming a monk or a nun, though it may be for you. I don't know. Maybe for anyone. <coughs> Maybe about that kind of outer, sudden, radical, complete transformation. Maybe about a very, a kind of, uh, very big kind of lifestyle trans transition for some time. And then, and then that might change. It's not about whether our life looks conventional or doesn't look conventional. It's not about whether we have a shaved head or a robe or a this or a that. But that sense of a willingness to, um, yeah, to give our lives to what we most value. And I think that's a, for anyone, everyone, that's, an, that's a helpful question, important question, challenging question as well. What would it be to give your life to that which you most value? Without having any uh, <coughs> fixed idea about what it is that you should most value, it's actually, it's a, it's a, it, that's a practice in itself. It's a contemplation in itself to find out. And it might be different in different circumstances. What do I most value? How can I give my life to that? Not in a large sweep of it, maybe, but sometimes just right now. Because there's a certain tragedy that in, amidst the details and dramas and duties of our lives, amidst the this is and that, the things that are in theory our top priority, the things I value most, actually end up almost unknowingly losing ground, that which I value the most, but I've got to do this first, and, I've got, and I want to do that first, and so-and-so asked me to do this first. And so when I've done all these things, then I'll give some attention to the thing I most value in life. That doesn't sound like a recipe for a fulfilling life. If that which we most value keeps losing ground to the details and dramas and duties and, and um, distractions, <coughs> and again, not every moment, but enough that one actually has the incredible fulfillment of feeling and knowing that life is generally going along in alignment with that which I most deeply value. And that one can know and feel and have the kind of the inner dignity of knowing I'm doing what I love. I'm honouring what I love. I'm aligned with what I love. I'm investing in what I love. Invest in what you love, really. And one's concern for the 
conventions of success or failure and gain and loss lose a lot of ground. If you if you giving yourself to what you most value, then it actually becomes quite easy to give up a lot of what you don't really value. Trouble is, often the, we've got the priorities the other way around. I'm not really giving myself to what I most value, and so I end up clinging rather neurotically and tightly to the little details and dramas. If one knows, um, I'm, you know, the inner compass of the heart is pointed enough, and often enough, and well enough, and sincerely enough in the direction of that which is most important. And then, oh, when there's this thing that has a little pull on my intention, or this thing that would be quite nice, or this thing, oh, it's easy to drop those. So that shift, again, is an invitation to, to see and recognize and really honor in yourself the way that alignment is alive. Because it is alive for all of you. And to let yourself feel where that's alive. Let yourself know. It's like by feeling it, you potentize it. And, of course, it's then an invitation to see when you know, that which is most important to you gets lost amidst the thises and thats. And there may be moments uh, for which it's also an encouragement to actually stop and really reflect on what is it? Do I even know what I most value? Because if that isn't front and centre, how are you going to give yourself to it? So that might be some soul-searching in a way, to, to find out what's most important. And for some of us, there's a very clear, like, there's a very clear single answer that's most important. And everything else is in the service of that. And for others of us, that takes a, lo a long time to be clear. And for others of us, it never comes clear as one single thing. But the question, nevertheless, can be really helpful in, in a certain context, in, in my social life. What do I most value and how can I support that? In my working life, what do I most value and how can I support that? Today, what's most important today? And how can I support that? Otherwise, today can just go past. So it doesn't have to be uh, that today has to be so have some grandiose thing. But there's something extremely nourishing, extremely potentizing about the feeling for and the finding that which you really is feels most worthy of giving yourself to, most worthy of investing in the precious resource that you are, the precious resource that you have. You've got health, got consciousness, got love, got capacity to listen, got the capacity to respond, to act, to care, to give. Wow. <coughs> we can do a lot with those resources. <laughs> so may we do what it takes to awaken more and more and may we do what it takes 
to know as fully and freely and wide openly as possible, more and more. And may we do what it takes to live with meaning and depth and value and true liberty. More and more and more and more. So that our practice is liberating for us, liberating for those we have contact with. So that the goodness of our practice can spread out in a world that needs a lot of goodness. Okay, thank you friends. Please enjoy your supper. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.